Welcome to this week's edition of the Contact Centre podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Mitchell, and I'm the Features Editor here at Call Centre Helper. In this episode, we'll be looking at the topic of what makes a great customer experience with Annette Franz, a well-known customer experience consultant and author. In 2019, Annette released her book, Customer Understanding, Three Ways to Put the Customer in Customer Experience, to great acclaim, and she shares many insights from her book and her own personal experience in our fun conversation which begins straight after this quick message from our friends at Natterbox. This podcast is sponsored by Natterbox. Natterbox is a cloud telephony platform that gives businesses a 360-degree view of their voice interactions. To find out more, visit www.natterbox.com forward slash voice 360. Thanks. So the first question that I have for you is a very broad one. It is, if the customer experience matters so much, why do you think that it's often so poor? That's a great question. I love that question, right? I think that probably the best answer is, is that it's really not taken seriously, right? You know, not all executives haven't aligned and signed on and really are still putting, you know, profits over people. So, you know, while it is you know, such an important concept and such an important thing that businesses deliver a great customer experience. There are still plenty of companies who don't quite get that yet. We, we talked before we came on the air about my, my new book. And the last chapter of my book is uh, an open letter to CEOs about, about exactly this, right? You know, the importance of the customer to the business, obviously, if we don't have customers, we're not in business and the importance of customer experience and the importance of, you know, why do we have to prove ROI or show ROI of focusing on a great customer experience when, you know, that's what the business is all about. So specifically to answer your question, I just think that there aren't enough, um, CEOs who have gotten on board and are open to doing something about it. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I also think a point that aligns very well with that is that many organizations are still kind of stuck in kind of traditional ways of doing things. And I think, for example, in the in the contact center, we see this a lot and where you have internal promotions. And that often means that things carry on as they are instead of kind of keeping up with the latest thinking and having outsized perspectives kind of brought in. So I think that processes are not often reconsidered in a modern context and kind of businesses remain in silos. Is this silo approach where kind of departments stay isolated from one another still a big issue that you're seeing? Absolutely. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that because I was going to just add a note about, you know, notice how I mentioned the fact that the CEOs aren't aligned and the executives aren't aligned and they're not on board. Right. And this then, you know, drives that it, it doesn't help the siloed situation at all. Right. Because there are certain departments that do want to focus and know that they need to focus on the customer. But when that happens, it becomes a siloed experience for the customer as well, right? It's not a seamless experience. They feel like they're working with, you know, five different companies when they're interacting with five different departments or five different areas of the business. And so, yeah, absolutely. The silos are, are, are a problem. And again, it stems from the top for sure. It's just a whole very interesting topic. And I know you mentioned your book there and kind of understanding your customers is a kind of key part in this new customer experience thinking. And it's a huge part of customer experience design as well, I think. So how should we be using customer feedback, in your opinion, to improve the customer journey? Yeah, absolutely. First, I want to just say that there are a 
couple of different ways that we get customer feedback, right? Now, most people think immediately about surveys, right? But, but you know, there's a lot of survey fatigue happening right now because everybody under the sun is surveying. So we can get feedback from customers, yes, from surveys, but then also from things like customer advisory boards, online reviews, panels. Um, you know, there are a lot of different ways. And then we also can get customer feedback quote unquote feedback, I'll just call it feedback. I'll just kind of bucket it into that because it's the data that they leave behind. And I like to say the breadcrumbs of data that they leave behind as they interact and transact with us, because that data tells us a lot about the experience and if they've purchased again, how, what they've purchased, you know, where they purchased all of those different kinds of things. So I think there's, that's an important thing is to take the feedback, the, the actual, you know, survey or however they providing the feedback plus that data and put it together to really have a robust analysis of the experience. And then that feedback's got to be used in, in a lot of different ways, right? First of all, it can't just sit where it was gathered. It has to be analyzed. It has to be shared out into the organization. It has to be responded to. So we've got to close the loop. And I, I, I always say, you know, you close the loop in, in five different ways, right? And and it's at the personal level. It's at the um, departmental level. It's at the strategic level. It's with our employees and it's with our customers, right? And so, so the feedback has to be socialized and then it has to be operationalized. And that's a, that's a really key thing in order for it to, the bottom line is it has to be used, right? We can't just, just, you know, quote unquote, collect feedback and and do nothing with it. There's no point in even, even listening to customers and, and asking for feedback if we're not going to do anything with it. Yeah. I think that's just a, a very interesting point uh, in general, kind of um, having actionable feedback and having a feedback plan that kind of encompasses the three A's I've heard, actionable, accessible, and audible, which I think yeah. is a very kind of uh, nice that. kind of approach to it. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. And I know kind of one of the feedback methods that I kind of hear a lot about when it comes to customer experience design is uh, creating personas. Uh, and that's still a kind of a key way that uh, companies are assessing their customer journeys. What are your kind of views on uh, using personas for for customer experience kind of testing? Absolutely. I totally agree. So you mentioned my book, right? And the book is is called Customer Understanding, and it's the three ways to do just that, right? On a, they're listen, characterize, and empathize. So listen is all about the feedback and the data that we just talked about. Characterize is all about the personas, and empathize is journey maps. So, so specific to personas, right? Personas are a way for us to really deeply understand who our customers are. They're research-based personifications uh, of groups of customers with similar needs, pain points, problems to solve, jobs to be done, you know, that kind of thing. And that is absolutely where we need to start when it comes to designing the experience, right? It takes us, it doesn't get us to the personalized level, you know, down the individual level, but it gets us to a much closer level so that we can ultimately then design the experience. Because we can't, as we're experienced designers, we can't design for every individual. That would be absolutely insanity. But we can design for these groups of customers with those similar needs and pain points and jobs to be done. And that gets us that much closer to designing an experience that will certainly make the customers happy. I think, yeah, I think personas, as you said there, really can be useful. I think one problem that kind of many uh, businesses have when they use personas, this is why I kind of really wanted to fixate on this uh, method of uh, customer experience design, is that kind of often we forget that customer behavior changes. And maybe, maybe five years ago, 
kind of my grandparents would never use social media in my life and then all of a sudden my nan's on Facebook so right? customer behavior doesn't <laughs> how you interact with them will change over time and I think kind of this is a very interesting topic but quickly moving away from my nan's social media habits I think one interesting thought that's recently come on is well this is a theory that all great customer experiences tend to be effortless um, or is there a case do you think of maybe adding some friction into the customer experience to systematically kind of blow the customer socks off with great customer service? Which approach would you kind of advise? Well, I don't, I don't believe that we should add friction just to be a hero, right? I believe that we should design the experience to be easy, simple, effortless, right? And that's that's what's going to blow people's socks off. If we, if we start to... What's a good word for it? I'm thinking of the word like, you know, it's fake, right? If we, if we falsely insert some, some friction points just to wow the customer, then we've got bigger problems. <laughs> we've got bigger problems, you know? So let's just keep it simple for ourselves, right? And let's design the experience that meets the customer's needs and make it simple, like I said, simple, easy, effortless. We can be heroes without creating scenarios that make us the hero. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think kind of this kind of principle of recovering a situation through good service so that customers will be more loyal to you than if the failure never happened in the first place is great in principle. But I mean, it must be so hard to achieve and often it will require a large amount of micromanagement. So kind of the big lesson for me in terms of customer experience is to leave nothing to chance, maybe. Would you agree with me in the fact that such micromanagement really does work or can that be dangerous? No, I I absolutely agree with you. You know, like I just said, you know, let's just take the time to understand our customers, understand their needs, pain points, problems to solve, jobs to be done, all of that, and then design the experience that's right for them, right? So, and I don't think it, I don't think that's micromanaging. I think that's being proactive and, and then we don't have to micromanage, right? If we're proactive about it, then we're doing the right thing and uh, it's, you know, keeping our customers happy as a result, so. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's a very uh, interesting topic, and I know I'm going kind of through these customer experience trends quite quickly here, but kind of another one that really does kind of <laughs> just I'm going to keep flowing with them because um, I recently read another one about customer experience, and another trend is customer emotion, and I recently read that great customer experiences consider customer emotions. So why do you think customer emotion within an experience is so critical to understand? Well, you know, I'm going to give you a scenario. So I have a client that I, and I love to tell this story. I have a client that went in the construction industry when we first started doing our journey mapping workshops. And I explained to them that, you know, when we do our journey mapping, what we have to capture is what the customer is doing, thinking and feeling. And as soon as I said feeling, you know, they're (laughs) eyes rolled back in their head, right? What? We're a bunch of macho guys, you know, we don't talk about feelings. And and then I made them use pink post-it notes for the feeling part of the journey too. So, so that was pretty good. But you know what the funny part was, is when we were done mapping and they saw how they made the customer feel, whether it was, it was happy or it was, well, you made us feel like you don't care about that was, those were the most impactful parts of the workshop of, of creating that journey map because now they could see immediately, oh, 
we're doing things great here. Oh boy, we really broke things here. You know, that kind of thing. And that's really the importance of emotion, you know, and, and, you know, when customers are happy and they're and a positive experience, you know, then, then they're going to advocate that they're buying again. They're going to do all the things that we hope and want them to do. Right. So, but I, but I just thought that's, that's a fun way to share how impactful the emotions can be for sure. Yeah. I think that's a very, it's very interesting story. And I think kind of, maybe the next step to customer emotions would be kind of defining the emotions that you want to drive. And I think that can be a very important part here. And I think that once again, comes back to understanding your customers is that kind of understanding your customers and applying certain emotions to the customer journey. Is that realistic? Yeah, I think it, I think it is. It is. So when, so the, you know, the exercise that I talked about at the beginning of this question was a current state journey map, right? If we work with the customers then to design the future state by doing future state journey mapping, then we can, again, ask them doing thinking, feeling during that exercise. And of course, nobody's ever going to say, we want to, we want to feel like you don't care about us at this point, but Using that type of an exercise and listening to customers and really understanding them is what's going to help us to identify what we want them to feel throughout the entire experience, right? So it's, it always starts with the customer. So that's the important thing to remember. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's it's kind of very interesting, this topic. And I think another kind of key part of this emotion approach that I've talked to a little bit about recently is the peak end rule. Do you think this is something that every customer experience professional should be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I do. You know, I, 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 years ago, I wrote a post that, that said first impression, last impression or lasting impression, right? You know, so that's where the impressions happen. The, you know, the moment that you first start interacting with a brand, there's only one chance for a first impression, right? And what we end up leaving them with is that last impression and we want that to be strong. But if we do a great job throughout the entire experience, now we've got a lasting impression as well, you know? And so I think that's really important, but I do believe that the peak end rule is, is something to, you know, pay attention to that. It's, it's an important concept for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting point. And I think maybe this whole topic of emotional intelligence in the kind of, especially the contact center is something that is going to become more and more part of our conversations in customer experience. And I think this is a good point to take a quick pause before we continue with our conversation to hear a quick message that we've created on behalf of Natabox, who have supported us in producing this podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Natabox. Natabox is a cloud telephony platform that gives businesses a 360 degree view of their voice interactions. It enables companies to accelerate productivity, transform the customer experience and improve data integrity all within Salesforce. Over 500 organizations worldwide rely on Natabox to set new standards in customer service and drive measurable increases in sales efficiency, competitive advantage, and organizational success. To find out more, visit www.natabox.com forward slash voice 360. Once again, that link is www.natabox.com forward slash voice 360, which is available in the description box below. Thanks. With all this in mind of what we spoke about so far, when we next kind of look to change our customer journey maps, what one thing do you think we should perhaps be looking to change? Thinking about the customer journey maps, I think it's less about what we need to change in the maps and more about 
when should we change, right? When should we map again? What are the things that we need to think about? And that's probably one of the biggest questions that I get asked. I do, I speak a lot about journey mapping and I can almost guarantee you at the end of the presentation, somebody will ask me, well, how, how, how often should I map or remap a journey, right? And it's really thinking about when things change, I know that sounds very vague, but when things change, right? So if you, <laughs> and there's, that's a very technical <laughs> phrase there, right? When things change, but it's, you got to think about, you know, how has, how has the business changed, right? Have, have there been mergers and acquisitions and, and new products and new services and on those kinds of things, but also how have the customers changed, right? How have environmental factors changed? You know, speaking of environmental factors, we've got a lot of those going on in the world today, especially. And so as we think about how business changes, how customer change, how competitors change, how we're doing things differently. And importantly, the feedback that we're getting from our customers as we listen to our customers to say, hey, you know what? This experience is broken or this this part of the experience is broken. Now we need to go and revisit what's happening. How do we need to do things differently? What can we learn from our customers that we now need to incorporate and change the experience? So I think that's that's the more important thing to focus on. I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's very interesting. And I think from kind of my experience with kind of seeing how organizations are using journey maps, I quite often feel though that there is a kind of a problem in using it as a tool across the business. And the fact that most of the time journey maps are kind of created by kind of outside consultancies. And that mindset carries out through the kind of organization and not enough people kind of take responsibility for kind of implementing uh, it. Do you think this is a problem or are we getting better at that? Yes, it is a problem. There are, <laughs> there are a lot of problems yeah. happening with how people do journey mapping. But yeah, absolutely. The one thing that you have to know when you do journey mapping is, or when you journey map is you've got to have customers in the room. You know, you can't just do it with a consultant. You can't just, you know, get a group of department heads or folks from different departments sitting around and creating the journey maps. You've got to have customers in the room and you've got to bring customer data into the journey maps as well, whether it's research you've done beforehand, feedback that's coming in on an ongoing basis, whatever it is, but you've got to include the customer in those, those exercises for sure. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting uh, topic that you said. There's a lot of mistakes that organizations uh-huh. are making with customer journey maps. Uh, you know, I'm going to know what my next question is. <laughs> <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on that. <laughs> That'll be our follow-up, mistakes to avoid or something like yep. that. But just, yeah, just very kind of quickly, what kind of other key mistakes are you, are you seeing? So we already talked about uh, personas. So not starting with personas, that's a good one. And, and personas are an, an interesting thing too, because a lot of times companies have personas, but they're marketing personas and they're not the same as what we need in terms of design. I just call them design personas, but, but they're too high level. We need, we need, you know, the factors that I've talked about, what are they doing, thinking, feeling, what are, what are your needs, pain points, problems to solve those kinds of things. Those have to be incorporated into the persona development. So, and, and, and using the design personas, a couple of other things, uh, let's see one and related to that is, is, you know, that one map applies to all customers, but of course it doesn't because all customers are not, not the same. So you do have to start with, um, with a persona, um, thinking that the map is, the, is, you know, I've mapped and I'm done. 
right? You know, it's, it's that's, but that's not it. The, the journey map is actually just the beginning. <laughs> there is so much more that needs to be done after you've created the map. So you can't view the map just as a, as a pretty picture on the wall and, and that's it. But there's so many uses for the map and so many great ways that a journey map can inform your, your customer experience strategy. So, um, so that's a really important thing. I think we just talked about this one too, about, you know, having people in the room and creating what we call an assumptive map and, and not having customers in the room. That's so important. What else? Uh, people start with future state mapping, but, you know, I think, I know you need to start with current state mapping, right? You've got to understand the current situation and what's going well and what's not and what you should keep doing before you go into future state mapping. So, oh, and one last one that is my favorite one is that journey maps are only used for um, customer experience. And that is wrong. They can be used for employee experience, vendor experience, partner experience, whatever else. So journey maps are a great tool and a great process for improving the experience of all, all constituents. Mm. Yeah, I think there was uh, lots of very interesting points there, and I'm kind of racking my brain to think of other kind of customer journey mistakes that I've come across. But I think kind of one thing that I found work really well for some organizations in terms of this is kind of once they've kind of identified through customer research and personas, as you were talking about, um, was to create a set of customer commitments that they try to meet at every touch point of the customer journey based on kind of the emotions and the values of their customer base. Do you think this is a good thing in principle? Absolutely. In principle. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's a, that's a great idea. Yep. I'll I'll throw one more out at you then. And this is a big one. This is, (laughs) this is, um, not having a budget to do the things that you uncover in the journey map, right? So you go and you create this journey map, but you don't have alignment from the folks around you to do something or the ones who have to, you know, ones who have to actually go and fix it. So first of all, everybody's got to be aligned and involved who's going to end up ultimately owning what comes out of the journey mapping. And then you've got to have budget in place to then go and, and fix it, right. To go and do something about it. And that oftentimes does not happen. So again, the, it, it just can't happen in a vacuum. Yeah. I think that goes, that fits in very nicely with the kind of first point that we talked about of businesses kind of still being stuck in kind of terms of objectives right. and kind of alignment <laughs> and key goals. We just came full circle. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it was all part of the plan. Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, yeah. There is, there is uh, one final thing though that I really kind of do want to get your opinion on because I saw that you've uh, recently published an article on the topic of uh, hyper-personalization. And I thought this was a very interesting concept. So I wondered if you could just explain what this means to our listeners and kind of the benefits of hyper-personalization and what they have on the uh, customer experience. It's an interesting evolution from, you know, we've uh, suddenly when everybody's finally queuing in on the, hey, we've got to personalize now, suddenly it's hyper hyper personalization, you know, but, but personalization just came down to simple things as, you know, dear Annette, you know, or, or, you know, uh, addressing folks by their names or, you know, those kinds of very simple, simplistic types of ways to make the customer feel like they were recognized. I, I think in the article, I used something along the lines of, you know, know me, that was really what personalization was all about. But now it's, hear me, know me, understand me and show me. Right. And, and that's all about context and relevance and timeliness. It's using tools like geofencing and biometrics and all of those kinds of things to, you know, when a customer walks into a store, they're suddenly recognized and, and, uh, or when you're just driving 
near a store, you're now suddenly recognized and the store sends you a, 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 an offering, you know, in, in via the app or in an email or something like that. So, so it's just become a lot more, what's a good word for it? <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> I would, I think, I think when I wrote the article too, I said, you know, again, you've got to have that balance of creepiness versus, you know, making sure that privacy and security and all of those kinds of things are, are upheld and to avoid the creepiness factor. But when it comes down to hyper personalization, it can really, we're talking a lot about context and how we're looking at things by location, channel, time of the day, the product, the previous interactions we've had and all of those kinds of things. And so it all comes together to really provide you this, this insane experience that suddenly, like I said, you know, hear me, know me, understand me and show me it's all happening with in, in real time. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a pretty interesting concept. Not a lot of brands are doing it well yet, but it's coming right. You know, um, I think that's, the cool thing about, you know, like Netflix and Starbucks and Amazon are probably among the ones who are doing it well, but there's still a lot of other brands that need to get in on this. And we'll, I'm sure we'll be seeing that happen over the, over the next year or so. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very interesting. I think it's kind of, there's lots of interesting ways that brands are using kind of data, like the ones that you just said to personalize the customer experience. I think one great example that I've heard is kind of using the IVR, say there's a power company and they know there's an outage in, say, London, and then they can put an IVR message as the customer phones in to, for an announcement about kind of, if you're in London, we're currently experiencing an outage, and quick give them an update there so they don't have to go through to and talk to the advisor, and they can just get the information there and then. I think examples like that can really kind of show the benefit of uh, personalization. I don't know if there's any really interesting examples of personalization that you've seen out there. I don't right off the top of my head don't have an example ex- except for a bad a bad one which I won't okay. go into and it's also it's also a utility <laughs> example but <laughs> it's also a utility <laughs> example but I think as I was listening to you give the that example it goes back to what we were talking about earlier and again we're coming full circle here is about simplicity right simple keeping it easy and effortless for the customer when we're getting ahead of the curve, when we're getting out there, we're being proactive in our messaging and our offers and those kinds of things. It's, it's keeping it effortless for the customer. And again, you know, we talked about emotions. Customers will be delighted when we do things like that. So I think it's, like I said, I think we'll be seeing a lot more of that in the next year or so. Yeah, I think kind of the whole topic of personalization and the bad examples, there's a few out there, as you say. I think one that I saw, this was a few years ago, was Admiral, the car insurance in Britain, they had a a policy where they would uh, look at social media data. They would use that to put a personalized quote instead of a generic quote, but that didn't last long because people didn't like how they were using their customer data. So there's lots of interesting ways. At least they kind of, they had a nice vision, but it wasn't a particularly great outcome, I don't think. But anyway, I'm sure this is a topic that we could speak lots and lots more. We've spoken lots already about kind of the different parts of the customer experience. So just as a final question, where can our listeners go to hear more from you? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking me that. Um, So my website, cx-journey.com, absolutely a great place to find information about me and also all my contact information there is there as well. And feel free to connect with me on Twitter at Annette Franz or on LinkedIn. So look forward to connecting with folks. Excellent. Great. Thank you for joining us today, Annette. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's all for this episode. Thank you to Annette Franz for the great conversation, to you all for listening, and to our sponsors Natterbox, as we could not have produced this episode without their support. 
We'll be back again very soon as we keep trying to provide all contact center and customer experience professionals with even more great content. So stay tuned. The Contact Center podcast is produced by Call Center Helper, the leading contact center magazine. You can subscribe to our podcasts or give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. You can also access our entire range of podcasts through the Call Center Helper website by visiting callcenterhelper.com forward slash podcasts.